Hello und willkommen in Berlin. Hello there, welcome to Berlin. To City Breaks Berlin, Episode 3, in fact. Unter den Linden. That long, wide boulevard that dominates the eastern half of the city and represents really old Berlin. Unter den Linden means under the lime trees and there were indeed originally lime trees planted all down the centre. It's really the street that represents Baroque splendour in Berlin, the street where you'll see the cathedral and palaces, but also, as with everywhere in Berlin, a place where you can find traces of other parts of history, somewhere where Nazi rallies were held, for example. A street which was cut off for 28 years in East Berlin, so behind the wall, and a street where the debate about what to do with history still continues, largely in the shape of the big newest building project, the Humboldt Forum, on the site of what was once the Imperial Palace. OK, so let's start with the basics. Unter den Linden, a street, about a mile long, which starts at the Brandenburg Gate and then goes east as far as Museum Island and the River Spree. A continuation of it then goes on towards Alexanderplatz, so right through the heart of what was East Berlin. It is a street which is full of splendid sights, not least the Pariser Platz or Paris Square right at one end, the bit where you'll probably linger to take your photos of the Brandenburg Gate. And if you then decide to wander from there, eastwards, you'll be passing things like a massive statue of Frederick the Great, the Hohenzollern King who had the greatest effect on this area, you'll be passing the Opera House and the Neue Wache, which is Germany's tomb of the unknown soldier. You'll pass the site of the Berliner Schloss, so the Royal Palace, as was the home of the Hohenzollern family, and more or less opposite that, the Berliner Dome, or Berlin Cathedral, where some 90 members of the Hohenzollern family are buried. And just beyond that, Museum Island, with its lovely entrance, the Lustgarten, or Pleasure Garden, a pretty little park right on the river. Will you see any lime trees? Well, not as many as you would have done in the old days. Most of them were chopped down for firewood in the freezing cold winters just after World War II. But lime trees were replanted in the 1950s along the sides of the road, so yes, you will see some. Again, as usually on city breaks, and as particularly is always true in Berlin, if you know a few things about things which have happened here in the past, you are going to see it in a different light as you wander down in tourist mode. The writer James Boswell was there in 1764, and he liked it very much. I was struck with the beauty of Berlin, he wrote. The houses are handsome, and the streets are wide, long and straight. The palace is grand. The palaces of the royal family are very genteel. The opera house is an elegant building. And he goes on to explain its Latin inscription, which tells you that it was one Frederick the Great who had it built. Mark Twain stayed there in the 1890s, and his wife Clara wrote in her journal this short description, which gives you the idea of Berlin as a centre of imperial power. I would stand, she wrote, at the window and watch the Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm II and his entourage leave every morning from the castle, ride along the Linden and exit through the Brandenburg Gate into the Tiergarten. The Tiergarten is that big park that dominates the northwestern corner of the city, today the domain of cyclists and joggers and what not, but in those days just the place for a spot of royal hunting. 
Jerome K. Jerome was there at round about the same time in the 1890s, and he described Wanted in Linden as being really a combination of Oxford Street and the Champs-Élysées. And actually, that's not a bad description for today, because yes, it is full of shops, and yes, it is also wide and impressive. Although Mr. Jerome found it really, quote, much too wide for its size. One of the most momentous moments of history took place in 1914 on the balcony of the Royal Palace, because it was from there that the Kaiser declared war. Thousands gathered there on the 31st of July, 1914, to hear him say, A momentous hour has struck for Germany. Envious rivals everywhere force us to legitimate defence. The sword has been forced into our hands. I hope that in the event that my efforts to the very last moment do not succeed in bringing our opponents to reason and in preserving peace, we may use the sword with the help of God so that we may sheathe it again with honour. War will demand enormous sacrifices from the German people, but we shall show the enemy what it means to attack Germany. And so I commend you to God. Go forth into the churches, kneel down before God and implore his help for our brave army. Four years later, after 37 million people had died, Germany was completely defeated and Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated on November the 9th, a day which the writer Harry Kessler described in his diary. He writes of walking through eerily quiet streets, hearing isolated shots still coming from the palace, where a few lights were still burning, although the opera house on the other side of the street was in complete darkness. So closes, he wrote, this first day of revolution, which has witnessed in a few hours the downfall of the Hohenzollerns, the dissolution of the German army, and the end of the old order of society in Germany, one of the most memorable and dreadful days in German history. In the 1930s, the Nazis used Unter den Linden for some of their most spectacular rallies and marches. They would gather in the Lustgarten by torchlight, thousands of soldiers in brown shirts preparing to march up and through the Brandenburg Gate. It was here too that the Nazis staged their exhibition of degenerate art, so 650 pieces confiscated from German museums and collected together to show the public the sort of thing which would no longer be tolerated. But even during World War II, which followed, at least in the early years, there was some semblance of normality on Unterdin Linden. The writer Harry Flannery described seeing crowds milling up and down the road, window shopping, listening to a German marching band, using their ration cards to buy a sausage from a sausage stand. Others dressed in what he described as old-time costumes, riding by in carriages and watching it all. And then, just a few years later, after the end of the war, a bombed-out street, the trees cut down for firewood, as people did their best to try and survive the freezing winters of 1946 and 1947. Shortly after that, Unterdin Linden disappeared into East Berlin. The GDR government built their parliament here, calling it the Palast der Republik, so the Palace of the Republic, a rectangular affair with lots of brown-tinted windows, so that people inside could look out, all the while stopping anyone from outside looking in. In there, wrote one author, dreams were turned into words, decisions made, announcements applauded, backs slapped. In there could be a whole other world. Time could warp. You could disappear. Now, three decades after the fall of the wall, 
Unter den Linden is back as the heart of Berlin, traces of that period gradually disappearing. So, let's have a think about some of the places you might want to visit while you're there. Start perhaps with the Berliner Dom, the Berlin Cathedral. So, it's true to say that the Hohenzollern's palace is gone, but the cathedral, which they built and where they are mostly buried, is still there. It was built, in fact, later than you might think, begun in the 1890s, when it was realised that although the Catholics had a cathedral on the Gendarmenmarkt and there was a big new synagogue in the Jewish area, the Scheunenviertel, there was no Protestant cathedral in Berlin. And the site chosen for it was just opposite the palace, where once the palace chapel had stood, and so it had been the site for the Hohenzollern graves. The design of the cathedral incorporated a crypt which contained the graves of over 90 members of the Hohenzollern family. So that's one thing to visit when you go. You'll probably want to go inside too and enjoy the Italian Baroque, central dome, glorious ceiling paintings, think mosaics and gold and statues. There's a marble and onyx altar, a white marble font, and one or two sarcophagi containing the bodies of, for example, Frederick I and his wife Sophie Charlotte. It is a splendid building, put up in the time of Wilhelm II, the last Kaiser of Germany, who was very particular about what he wanted. He rejected two designs before he accepted this one. He wanted the final result, he said, to be a rival in Berlin for St Peter's in Rome or St Paul's in London. Am I allowed to say I'm not sure he quite managed it? Beautiful, though, it certainly is. Once you've been inside, you may choose to climb the 270 steps up the dome to see the glorious views of Berlin. And on the way, in or out, do pause to read the inscription over the entrance, which is from the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 20, and says, Ich bin bei euch. I will be with you. Alle Tage bis an der Weltende. Every day until the end of the world. A reminder then that amid the splendid art and the sense of history and the crypts, really, first and foremost, this is, of course, a place of worship. Something you are certainly going to notice if you walk the length of Unterdain Linden is the statue in the middle of Frederick the Great on horseback. He sits proudly up there surveying his domain because he really is the king who had the biggest effect on this part of Berlin and commissioned its most splendid buildings even though, in fact, I must add that he didn't live here very long because he preferred his palace which he built in Potsdam. More of that in a future episode. So then, Frederick the Great. He reigned for 46 years from 1740 and gained the title because Germans think of him as the greatest member of the Hohenzollern family. Partly because of his military prowess, he expanded Prussian territory, he was respected by Napoleon, who announced when he arrived to conquer Berlin in 1806, so 15 years or so after Frederick's death, that his troops should take their hat off to him because, gentlemen, he said, if he were alive, we wouldn't be here. So, yes, first and foremost a soldier, but he was also respected as being a very strong leader of Prussia and of Berlin, someone who kept order, but who also allowed a cultural renaissance to flourish. He loved music and literature, he welcomed people like the philosopher Voltaire to his court and generally encouraged the development of the arts and of ideas, although I noticed that in the Encyclopaedia Britannica he was referred to as an enlightened despot. And he's remembered too for the transformation he effected in Berlin itself. 
He wanted it to be a city of classical grandeur, somewhere as beautiful as Rome or Athens. And he transformed particularly this area around Unterdinlinden, which he referred to as the Forum Fredericanum, and which became more generally known by Germans as Frederikstadt. The writer Brian Mellican explains, The most beautiful part of Berlin, the Frederikstadt, is almost exclusively the work of Frederick. And he goes on to describe Frederick riding around this part of the city, wearing an eyeglass and checking on the progress of the buildings that he had commissioned. I should add that not everyone was a huge fan, for example the diplomat Nathaniel Raxel, writing in 1777, said that yes, he did like the regularity and magnificence of the buildings, and there was an aspect of creative genius about it all, but he found it a little too grand. In his opinion, quote, ostentation and vanity, more than utility or necessity, seem to have impelled Frederick to enlarge and embellish his capital. And Nathaniel Raxall's particular complaint was that yes, the splendid fronts of the finest houses were very impressive, but behind them lay poverty and wretchedness. So then, the Forum Fredericanum comprises four main buildings on or near Unterdenlinden, all of which Frederick had commissioned. They would be the Opera House, for which he paid both the building costs and the running costs. Being a big music fan, he was determined that Berlin would have an impressive opera house, and it's still there today for you to see. Then there's St. Hedwig's Cathedral, on what is today called Babelplatz, a Catholic cathedral, named after the patron saint of Silesia, Silesia being an area that Frederick had recently conquered, and he was trying to integrate it into Germany. Silesia being a Catholic area, a Catholic cathedral in Berlin was called for. Thirdly, there is the building which is today the Humboldt University, but which Frederick had built as a palace for his younger brother, Prince Heinrich, Prince Henry in English. And fourthly, the Alte Bibliothek. So that means old library, but in its day it was, of course, a very new library. Indeed, the largest library in Europe at the time, and it was commissioned by Friedrich for his enormous book collection, although it is said that the building was in fact much bigger than he personally needed. It's still there today, it's been filling up with books ever since, and so today it really is a collection fit for a capital city. Considering all these things which Frederick left Berlin, it's perhaps slightly strange to note that when he died in 1786, he wasn't really very much mourned. As the writer Mirabeau put it, no voice of regret is to be heard, not a sigh, not a word of praise. Is this the sum of so many victorious battles, of such fame and glory? Is this the end of almost half a century of rule, a reign so rich in deeds? You may be wondering why, but I think it's worth noting that Frederick's attitude and Frederick's wars cost his people hugely, as illustrated in a story that's told about the day that Frederick died. He is said to have asked his doctor on his deathbed whether the doctor had seen many men into the next world, and the doctor apparently replied, referencing all the people who had been killed in Frederick's wars, not as many as your majesty. And I guess the second explanation would be, if Nathaniel Raxall was right to say that there was a lot of poverty in Berlin, behind the splendour of Frederick's beautiful facades, then there would have been plenty of people who thought he could have found a better use for his wealth. So, back to Unterdenlinden, what else is there to go and visit? The Neue Wache, which is Germany's Tomb of the Unknown Warrior. It's in a relatively small building, so it would be quite easy to miss, 
If you start at the Brandenburg Gate end of Unter den Linden, you will find it up on the left-hand side, just before the German History Museum, which is massive and much easier to spot. That, by the way, is a splendid collection. It's shut at the moment and will be, I think, for four years. But if you get the chance in the future to go, do take it. Anyway, just before that, you will find the Neue Wache, which is a low building with columns and a portico, surrounding an inner hall that is largely empty, except for, right in the middle, a statue, a black marble pieta of a mother and her dead adult soldier son, who's lying with his head in her lap. The original was made by the artist Keta Kolwitz. It's a very poignant reminder of the human cost of war, made more so by the knowledge that Keta Kolwitz's own son, Peter, her only son, I think, was killed in World War I. What you're looking at here is, in fact, not the original, because that was smaller, and because it was deemed to be the perfect piece of art to go into such a place, it was decided that a larger copy should be made by a different artist. As so often, the whole history of Germany seems to be wrapped up in this building. It was built in 1818 as a guardhouse and to serve as a memorial to the victims of the Napoleonic Wars. In 1931, it became the National Memorial for the Dead of World War I, and the East German government changed it again slightly. It became then a memorial to, quote, the victims of fascism, and an unknown soldier and a concentration camp victim were both buried there, along with soil from the battlefields. After the fall of the wall, when the Neue Wache was then part of a united Germany, it was once again redesignated, and there's a very careful notice outside explaining that the Neue Wache is the place where we commemorate the victims of war and tyranny. And then there's a long and detailed list of the people that includes those killed in action, the innocent killed in war, those who were captured, those who were persecuted, Jews, the Roma, the Sinti, and those who stood up to tyranny and lost their lives doing so. I think you'll find that the sight of this statue in a largely empty hall is one of the most memorable things you'll see in the whole of Berlin. Towards the end of Unter den Linden comes Museum Island and the Lustgarten. Lustgarten meaning pleasure garden, designed as a park to form an entrance to the Museum Island, created in fact in the 16th century, originally as a fruit and herb garden to serve the palace across the road, but turned by Frederick William the Great Elector into a pleasure garden for his wife Louisa in the 17th century. Altered and redesigned by various Hohenzollern after that, it was a leisure area really right up to the 20th century, when it was still used for frolicking of various sorts, May Day gatherings for example, but it was used too for political gatherings, for example, the mass Nazi rallies, when on occasion there were over a million people gathered to hear speeches by, for example, the propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels. It was also a place for mass protests against the Nazis, the last one of those being in 1933, after which date protests had to go largely underground. Today the Lustgarten is a pretty little park which forms the entrance to Museum Island, a place where, if you wish, you could get lost for days, because it is a site for five massive museums. The Lustgarten is also a little spot for getting on a boat if you want to do a boat trip of the River Spree, and if you prefer to sit at a cafe on a riverside terrace, I can recommend the one at the back of Berlin Cathedral. 
The exit leads you through it, but you can also get in from the road just by following the signs. I found it a splendid place to sit and watch the boats on the river and enjoy a very German snack of waffeln, so waffles, mit Sauerkirschen with sour cherries und Schlagsahne and whipped cream. If you do decide to investigate the museums, the first decision is whether to buy one ticket which allows you entrance to all of them or whether perhaps you're not going to get round them all and you want to pay just to go into one or two separately. Across the complex in total, you will find 6,000 years worth of treasures. And the first one you'll come to is called the Altus Museum, the old museum in English, where there are Greek and Etruscan and Roman treasures. Just next to that, the Neues Museum, so the new museum, which confusingly is for early history, so the Stone Age, the Bronze and Iron Ages and so on, and also for Egyptian history. Perhaps the most visited exhibit in there being the model of Queen Nefertiti. Behind those two, at least if you've started from the Unter den Linden end, you will find the Alte National Gallery, so the old National Gallery, which is basically 19th century European art, including lots of German art, portraits of Kaisers, and of lots of other famous Germans, for example the Brothers Grimm, who wrote the fairy tales, and lots of other paintings of German scenes at court, at opera balls, street scenes, country scenes, there's one called the Cherry Harvest, for example. I'll be talking about the art there in more detail in the art episode. So let's move on then to museum number four, possibly the biggest hitter of the five, the Pergamon Museum. It is Germany's most visited museum, and it too is a museum of the ancient world, where the highlight, I think, is a reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. As the Lonely Planet put it, you should prepare to, quote, draw breath as you enter the 2,600-year-old city gate to Babylon, which has soaring walls, sheathed in radiant blue-glazed bricks and adorned with ochre reliefs of strutting lions, bulls and dragons, representing Babylon gods. There's also a reconstruction of a Roman market gate, and another very much-visited room is the Aleppo Room, where you can see buildings from Aleppo in the 17th century. And last but not least, of the five, the Border Museum, full of Byzantine sculpture and paintings and coins. Overall, the whole complex is, I think you could say, perhaps a mix of the British Museum and the Louvre. I think that however many times you visited Berlin, you could always pop back into one or other of the museums and see lots of things you'd never seen before. It's possible in guidebooks or on leaflets to get a little suggested tour of the highlights of one or more of the museums. Perhaps that's the way to go if you don't want to get lost for the whole of your stay in the ancient and the historical. Although, if that's your thing, I don't think there's anywhere better on earth to enjoy them. So I hope you're building up a picture of Unter den Linden with all the many splendid things along its length to visit. But there's one place I haven't mentioned yet and I've left it till last because it sort of sums up this idea of all the history that's there against the notion that this is the 21st century and we need to look forward to. And that's the building called the Humboldt Forum. So it was the site of the Berliner Schloss, so the Royal Palace. It represented then Imperial Berlin, the home of the Hohenzollern family. But its 20th century history meant that it didn't survive. It was badly damaged in World War I, destroyed pretty much completely in the 1950s by the GDR regime, the East German government. 
who of course had nothing good to say about imperialism and who chose it as the site for their new parliament building, the, possibly you could say quite ugly, Palace de République, the one with the brown glass windows and the sinister connotations. And so, after the fall of the wall in post-1989 Berlin, came the question, what to do with this site? Should history be put back? Should it be preserved? Should it be forgotten? What about a nod to the future? I think it's fair to say that Berlin debated this rigorously and endlessly, and eventually a plan was hatched. Actually, the people who came up with the plan knew that it might not be popular with everyone, so they did quite a clever thing first. They erected some scaffolding, and they put up painted sheets of what they were proposing to build, and left them there for a bit, so people could get used to them and decide what they thought. In the end, the decision was, let's build something the same size as the old palace building. It fitted beautifully when it was here, and we really do want to reproduce that. And let's keep quite a lot of the Baroque splendour. So in the end, three of the four sides are a recreation of the Baroque exterior, and then the fourth side has a modern façade, the one facing east towards Alexanderplatz. Quite a clever way to keep the history and yet look to the future as well. What about the inside? That isn't done out like the old palace. That's completely new and different, and it's known as the Humboldt Forum. It's an exhibition space, a conference centre. It's run by three very worthy Berlin institutions, the Humboldt University, the City of Berlin, and something called the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation. And these are the words its director used to explain what exactly it is. Quote, It is not a museum, it's not a palace, it's a forum, an accessible place where various parties congregate to engage with different ideas. And at the end of his speech he summarised it in the following words, It will be a visual, cultural and historic heart for Berlin. I think on any visit to Berlin it's going to be worth checking up what's happening at the Humboldt Forum because I think the general thinking is it will be all sorts of different things, including, hopefully, something for everyone. So then, so much for Unted in Linden, under the lime trees. I hope to have provided enough information for an informed walk up and down its length. I think for many people it will be the main area to visit in the city. Yes, for the history and the splendour of the old days, but also absolutely for Berlin in the 21st century. Seeing Unterden Linden and its extension up as far as Alexanderplatz means you've seen the spine of the eastern half of the city. But we must not forget the western half, and indeed, that's where I'll be going in the next episode in two weeks' time. I'll be taking in the Tier Park, which dominates the northwest corner of the map, definitely paying a visit to that other very well-known street, the Kurfürstendamm, looking a little at the history of the area and definitely looking at what there is to see when you go and visit today. So I hope very much that you'll be able to join me for that. And meanwhile, let me just thank you very much for listening and for accompanying me on my trip to Unterden Linden and say goodbye until next time. Also vielen Dank fürs Zuhören. Thanks for listening und auf Wiederhören bis zum nächsten Mal. And goodbye until next time.